0: off with a bit of an activity. I'm curious who would like some cookies. Oh good, that's, a, that's perfect. I'm starting that way off. I want to start off with playing a little upfront game here, uh, a game called Two Truths and a Lie. So I need three volunteers. I know, like All the kids are like, I want cookies so bad. Any adults too? Help out. Okay, we're going to take Deb. We're going to go with Trevor and Oh man, there's so many of you guys, it's so tough. Jordan, so here's, here's how this game goes, okay? And you guys can come on up here. You're gonna come up with three things about yourself, cool facts, places you've been to or something you've done or something weird you've eaten, but one of those things, so you're gonna have two things that are true, one of those things is a lie, okay? But you gotta say convincingly because everyone here is gonna take a guess which they think the lie is, right? You kinda of got that in your mind, you a little bit ready? You wanna go for a first, Trevor? Right. Okay, so let's listen up. Let's see what we can figure out. Stare at his eyes. I love reading. I, I go to the US every single year and I'm 11. No, he's not <laughs> <laughs> The siblings. Oh man, ratted out by the siblings, sorry bud. Here, okay, yeah, that was, you get the cookies for the try, because those are good. What were the other facts that you said? The U.S. every year. And, um, yeah, I love and you love reading. Good fads. You got some ideas, Jordan? Yeah. Okay, siblings, zip it. Yeah. Give everyone else a chance. Okay, let us know your three things.
1: I like playing Lego. And I like... I. Cheesy likes to read. And I have no idea what other ones are.
0: Don't know another one? No. Oh. What about what's a place you've been? Um,
1: Canham Lake.
0: Canham Lake, okay, okay. So do we think any of those, uh, any of those were false? Were any of those lies? I don't think cheesy, likes to read, like, cheesy doesn't like to read. Cheesy doesn't like to read. The family, hey, there's so much family here. They just know, man, is, is that, was that the lie? Yeah. Uh, it was a lie. They got it. Uh. <laughs> okay, we're, we're trying one more here. You get one more. All the family is just getting all the points here. So you can just go, okay, Deb, let's, let's try this, okay? Oh, no, we're going to try to convince, okay? Okay. Straight face. okay? Straight face. I'm a mother of two.
1: Um, I take care of kids. And I have 10 grandkids. <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 got it. And you guys all put the line there. Well, you got the middle. Thank you so much for helping. Do you want the cookies, still, too? Yeah, yeah. There you go. You earned, you earned it. Thank you for that. We'll have to check after, okay? I don't have enough for everybody. Sorry, guys. It was, it was like, I know. Man, with the kids up and I tempted them with cookies. Two truths and a lie. I, okay, so that didn't quite work out this way. You guys all, like, know and you can just read it. And we're just not good liars, I guess. Oh, man, my whole point this morning was about how we just don't know enough about each other. But apparently we know a lot about each other, so don't have a whole lot more. Okay, we are in the book of Galatians. We're starting off right into that this morning, because I want to get us into this mind space for this communion service we're doing. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you've got the app, we're just going to be reading through a couple verses this morning. We're going to dive straight into it. Uh, Last week, we started off chapter four, and we're kind of continuing on. We're in Galatians chapter four, verse eight. And so if you got your Bible, that's like three quarters of the way through the Bible. It's a short, small-ish book. If you've got an app, just Google it and search it up nice and easy. Um, But verse eight, I'm just gonna start reading it through. We're gonna dialogue about it. We're gonna learn a bit this morning. But Galatians four, verse eight, it goes, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Okay, let's chat about this for a sec here first. So. Uh, the author of this book, man named Paul, he wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament. They were actually letters that were written to churches, to followers of Jesus in ancient Eastern Mediterranean area. Galatia would have been kind of like modern-day Turkey, and there were these churches that uh, this man Paul had like planted. He was telling people about Jesus, and now after a few years, he was hearing about some stuff that was going on that he didn't like, that he needed to correct. And so he wrote these kind of instructions, these corrections, and tried to drive people back to Jesus, the original message he taught, the original thing he said about this good news of a man named Jesus who came and died for our sins and performed these healings and miracles and changed our lives and our connection with God, and it changed people's lives. And so quickly, people started to like, okay, I love that, I love it. But then they started to go away and make their own kind of decisions and own traditions and religions and kind of push Jesus off the wayside. So Paul kind of is coming back in here and the whole idea of this letter to the Galatians is you have to stop that and come back and focus on Jesus, the message that changed your life initially. And so what we were talking about last week and Paul's doing a little bit of a recap here uh, is this idea of slavery, which we chatted a little bit about, but just to kind of... we could just dive so much into this. He's talking to two groups of people. There's this ultra-religious Jewish group of people, God's people. They have they have generations and lineage and stories of coming all the way back from a time when God brought these people out of slavery and oppression in Egypt, brought them into uh, Promised Land. He was working with them, all this stuff. And so they have this this massive religion just based around this, but they also have a strong history and tradition of remembering what and knowing stories about what being slaves to a whole nation was like. That their entire people, their entire culture was enslaved by another nation. So they have this as like a vivid raw memory and Paul uses this idea of slavery where they think that they're liberated, they think that they're kind of free, they're not part of that story anymore in history. And Paul's saying actually you are and in fact you're enslaving yourselves because you've created these systems of religions and these rules and this culture and tradition that you worship and you're now a slave to that. He's also talking to, so he's talking to these ultra-religious people. He's also talking to these people who are just part of the culture at the time, um, the Greeks and the Romans. It is this is Roman Empire, so they were what they called Gentiles, these people who were not part of God's people. They weren't Jewish. They didn't know anything about the history or whatever, but the good news of Jesus came to them too, and they believed it, and they had their lives changed by it. And they were... As well, now getting the sense of, because they were more wealthy, they had some privilege in their culture and stuff. A lot of them would have had their own servants. They thought they were at the top and they weren't ruled by anything. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, you too are actually finding yourselves enslaved by all these other things you believe. You think that your life is all driving towards gaining wealth and power, but now you're a slave to your drive for success and career and wealth and power. And we can relate to that. He says, that you think that you're completely free and liberated, but you actually have your entire lives ruled by your pursuit of sex and intimacy and relationship and all this stuff, and now you're enslaved to that. So you're actually at the bottom of the barrel. You're all slaves to these things that Paul says in verse eight here uh, are not gods. These things he calls are not gods, but, or at least by nature, they've become gods because of the power and the focus and the attention we give to it. It's this thing that it's a good reminder for us because Very rarely, and especially if you're coming here this morning and you're not a church person, you're not a skeptic, worship is probably not a term you use ever really in your life. But worship simply means to give great value to something. And the things you give great value to, regardless of what it is, if it's a deity, if it's a philosophy or a worldview, if it's a political party, whatever you're worshiping in that sense, you kind of become a slave to it. You're a worshiping servant to it. And so often we think we're completely free with no strings on us. We're not enslaved by anything, right? We're, we're Canadians, the land of the free, and instead we actually are slaves to a ton of stuff, whether it's just our need of approval on social media or if it's our need for entertainment and addiction through Netflix. We're a slave to all of these things. We just don't give them names like the ancient day and the Bible day gave them names to other gods like Aphrodite, the god of sex, or Mammon, the god of money and power. So Paul's doing this recap. He says, When formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But, verse nine, but now that you know God, or rather known by God, we're gonna pause here for a sec. But, it's a very good word. And Leslie and I, so my wife and I, um, we learned this thing in one of our communications classes uh, in college, it's uh, it's called the butt rule. And we've got a butt rule now at home too never thought I'd say but so many times during a sermon. The but rule. So here, here's the but rule. You can probably relate to it. So you can say a whole bunch of really good things to somebody, right? You can say, like, Justin, you've got such a great singing voice, and I love the way you lead up front and all this stuff, but you've got some lettuce in your teeth. That's the only thing he hears now, right? The rest is gone. He doesn't, actually. <laughs> Checking it now. When, you, when you're saying something hard to maybe you've got, like, an employee, and you're like, oh, I don't want to, like harm them too much or whatever, so you think I'm gonna hide all bunch of, you know, I'm gonna hide the hard thing behind a button. So you're like, hey, you're a good worker, you've been here for a long time, but you show up late way too often. That's kind of the only focus, right? The but rule is like, if you use that in a sentence, all the stuff beforehand is kind of negated. It goes away, suddenly it doesn't matter because everything after the but is now the focus point. Now there's a good version of that So mostly to say that, Leslie and I, in in marriage and stuff like that, if we're having an argument, we're frustrated, we try to avoid buts, right? Because I'll be mad, and I'll, okay, well, I really, really love you, but... And Now she's not listening to any of the love part. I'm just throwing mean stuff at her. So we try to avoid that. But in the Bible, we have a different kind of sense. What you actually see regularly in the writing, especially the Apostle Paul and Jesus when he's speaking, he'll talk all about stuff That is our worldly experience. You experience these difficulties in the world. You find this oppression. You find this darkness. You're sad. You're hurt. All these things that suck, but brings a truth from God, how it matters. What he often says is these things where we get the sense where it's like, here's what you've experienced in the world. Here's the questions and the mysteries and the challenges you face, but here's God's design and intention for you. And now we have the Apostle Paul with it, and it's a beautiful, it's a really nice but in the middle of the statement. So he says, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those that by nature are not God. But now that you know God, and here's the heart of what we're looking at this morning, or rather are known by God. It's this really radical idea, and it's not only here in the Bible. It's something that we actually find often regularly. It comes up in Scripture, this idea that God knows us, and not knows us, like knows a bunch of stuff about us, like knows facts about us. You do read that, too, in the Psalms and stuff. God knows the hairs on your head. Uh, some of us, that's easier to count than others. God knows how many hairs I'm losing on my head. But so, yeah, Bible talks often about, and religions and all sorts of ideas and philosophies around the world, talk about, you know, a creator, a deity that knows stuff about the world, all-knowing, omniscient, right? But there's a different word that's actually used in the original language here, about knowing us. The Hebrew word, I can't actually pronounce it. It's Y-A-D-A, yada, yada. I don't speak Hebrew, so I don't know. But it's a different meaning. It doesn't mean knowing stuff about. It, it means knowing like a deep, intimate, holistic knowing. It's kind of like our word. We have the word love it can mean stuff like I love pizza or I love the Toronto Raptors, which is like a much more passionate love, right? Or, or you love your wife, right? It's this deep commitment love, right? Way bigger than pizza, maybe you really like pizza, this word in Hebrew, yada, yada, it means to know, but it can actually be used regularly too, the same way uh, in the first book of Genesis, um, Adam knew his wife, there's like deep, intimate, passion union, it's not actually talking just about sex, it's talking about this complete knowledge and interaction with each other, okay, I want to explain this a bit, and I could only kind of come up with a bit of a dumb example, because uh, there's a lot of examples where Jesus talks about the way a shepherd knows his flock, knows his sheep. And I don't know anything about sheep. I don't, are there any shepherds here? We don't know much about sheep. We can't get it. I imagine sheep are fairly boring, but a shepherd knows every single one of his sheep. So it's a neat idea. So I started thinking instead about, okay, animals. So we're cat people. I've got two cats. It's going to be a cat story. It's good. Cat stories are fun. One of these cats uh, is an orange cat. He is an overweight orange cat. I've learned that most orange cats are actually overweight orange cats too. Uh, his name's Rocket. He used to be fast. Now he is slow and chunky. <laughs> but, and here's a fun thing. Our neighbors right next to us have an orange cat. It's an overweight orange cat as well. And they both like to hang out in their yards, not together. They don't like each other very much. They just hang out on their own. But they get into each other's spaces often. And they'll be running after each other or sitting near each other, stuff like that. And from like a far off glance, you might be like, (laughs) they're both orange cats. There's not that much distinction between them, right? They're they're fat, they're round, they don't move very fast. Um, But whenever I get close, like I have to go grab our cat if it hops into the neighbor's yard, vice versa, he comes over, you can tell really quick just by the way he trots around, by the way he just sits, like I just know, right? Looks the exact same, he's got the same little white paws as the other one. They're both about 18 and a half pounds, it's ridiculous. Um, but you just know, I can just see, and that comes because of, well, he's also a very clingy cat, so he's, like, all up in my space. I've spent way too much time with him. He sleeps, like, on, well, actually, on Leslie's head at night. You just can't help but get to know them in a deeper way, not knowing stuff about, but just knowing, right? Is that kind of clicking a bit? Okay, cat example over. (laughs) <laughs> we'll go from there. Uh, another one that came to my mind, though, who's seen the movie Avatar? The Blue People, the Planet Aliens. It's extremely like popular, successful movie. Actually, they just came out with the second one of it, like nine years late, but I think two days ago, finally released it. Um, anyways, premise of it there's this alien planet, it's this kind of like paradise nature hasn't been messed up with with other sort of conflict and wars or anything like that. So it's like nature planet, there's these blue alien people. And actually, it's this very beautiful kind of picture of Eden, the Garden of Eden, kind of pure creation. And one really neat imagery they bring into it, I find, is that one of the features these aliens can do, these blue people, is they can actually kind of make their nervous system interact with each other. They have like these things that come out of their head, they can talk to each other, and they get this like deep, intimate knowledge, like way more than language could communicate, more than a hug could communicate. And then what's neat, they actually even do that with nature. They can connect with plants and other animals, and this kind of knowledge, and this community, like whatever. It's actually a beautiful picture of Eden, but that's that exact word, to know. So that's what Paul's talking about here, is God has a knowledge of us, a knowledge that goes way more than just knowing about us, knowing that you exist, knowing where you live, but knows you. Or rather, and here's one of the things that we're talking about this morning, wants to know you. Okay, so God has the potential, the ability, everything to know you, but in some bizarre way, he's given us this free will that actually lets us try to hide from him. One of the first things that happened in the Garden of Eden, this beautiful thing where God is present, he's talking with Adam and Eve, he's He's present. He knows them really well. They rebel against him. They sin. They disobey one of the rules of the garden. And the first thing they do is they try to hide from God. And it's this interesting point here you have in the Garden of Eden now where God knows where they are. But instead he asks. He says, hey, Adam, where are you? You're hiding from me. I don't know where you are. So he allows this kind of hidden. And we still do that same thing. Because see, here's the problem. We are actually not very good at letting ourselves be known. It's kind of why we try doing that little uh, activity at the start of the service here. Uh, It's just this idea, two truths and a lie. There's a lot of family here, so you kind of do know, and you can see that too, right? You got some fun facts about somebody, and so when you're related to, or siblings, you know way too much about them because you spend way too much time, and the siblings probably driving each other nuts. One of the realities of driving each other nuts, you're probably driven nuts because you know a lot about each other. You know them quite deeply and intimately too but here's a question for you who really knows you in your life can you think of someone around your age probably the more a common one might come up if you're married your partner hopefully knows you quite well do they know the good stuff and the bad stuff the things that are really hard a really easy measure Um, Like, I know, and so, okay, the whole man-cold thing, right? When men get a cold, they become miserable babies. Whatever, that's fine. Um, I'm not great when I'm sick, but I think I do okay. My big weakness is when I get eye injuries, and I get a lot of eye injuries. It's very frustrating. Like, I've been to the hospital a number of times for having, like, metal shards and slivers in my eyeball. Maybe my eyelids don't work well enough. I don't know, but I become Pathetic when my eye has the slightest ailment like if, if I can't if it's hurting a little bit I'm just whimpering and crying and just I don't want to do anything and I do try to put on a tough exterior when I have to get out when I have to do stuff I got a metal shard in my eye one time I had to drive myself to the hospital But then when I'm at home my wife gets to see the true pathetic me with an eye injury I had a prescription after one of those injuries for these uh, drops I had to do, and I just I couldn't even do it, and I was just complaining constantly, so she had to just sit there and pathetically take care of me while I binged watching some Netflix shows and putting eye drops in my eyes. It was ridiculous, but she, you know, got to see that side of me. I'm sure she wished I could put on a bit of a tougher exterior, but that's part of knowing. It's actually being comfortable with showing and exposing the, the harder stuff, the wimpier stuff, and the good stuff, right? Somebody who really knows you is somebody you're comfortable being vulnerable with, vulnerable in front of. So think about that. Is there somebody in your life? And hope, you know, if it's your spouse or a partner or somebody around your age, a close friend, do you have two people? Because a lot of people have one, if any at all. Now here's another question. Is there somebody who is older than you that knows you really well? Somebody who... Maybe there's a relationship, a parent or their mentor or a coach or something like that, but somebody who has impact in your life like with a generational gap. Because that's less and less common now too and more and more rare. Even more so, how about somebody who's younger than you? Do you let yourself be known to somebody who's younger than maybe you're a mentor or a coach? And part of that kind of impact, actually, and here's a challenge too, this is a church with a lot of seniors in it, a lot of older generations. Do you let yourself be vulnerable and known to people younger than you. I know something I would crave is to actually have a more honest, open connection and relationship with uh, people outside of my generation. Both myself and Leslie haven't had grandparents for over a decade. And to have a real known relationship with somebody where I can be known and they can be known to me too. And just to see that sort of guiding. And I, I get it. It's not culturally normal it's not something that we do in this world that's normal of being vulnerable with each other and in fact so I know you know uh, in an older generation and something that we've been learning with our families too is uh, the world kind of says like have a stiff upper lip don't ever be vulnerable show yourself to be strong and confident and sturdy without any cracks right anything like that is actually kind of seen in in our world as being a failure if you're shown to have any sort of weakness so you put a shell around yourself. You don't let yourself be vulnerable. Author Bernay Brown has this uh, quote where she says, um, "Putting on a facade or having a shield ends up being like a 20-ton shield, and rather than protecting you, it actually just prevents you from being seen at all." And if that's our regular kind of, and it's, it's not just the, the past generations. I actually, uh, I was kind of reflecting on this and thought, you know, I know my generation has a lot of language for mental health. We have a lot of language for emotional intelligence. and But it's kind of tokenism because we're actually still incredibly closed off. And now we even have this other piece of our identity and personality we put on the internet and create social media profiles that we have to curate incredibly. And we don't let ourselves be known in any sort of real capacity there, but that's another chunk. So when that's our normal, how on earth are we Able to be known by God, do we let ourselves be known by God? When we see a statement like God who wants to know us, it's different than just knowing God. It's actually reciprocal. Another quote by the same author, Brene Brown, says, vulnerability is the core, the heart, and the center of meaningful human experiences. What most of us fail to understand is the vulnerability is also the cradle of emotions and experiences that we deeply crave. When we're feeling like we're lacking something, we're missing something, we just are not connecting with it. It's because we are busy putting up a shell and protection around ourselves. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. And here's where it impacts our faith. Here's where it impacts our relationship with God, with Jesus, is there's this word that we don't talk about often, we don't like, this word repent. Because the whole idea around this faith and the message of Jesus is, it's good news, it's celebration, it's victory, it comes with grace and it comes with love, but also comes as saying, on your own, people, humans, Grant, myself, all of you, you're kind of a mess. You're doing a lot of the wrong things under your own guidance. God has a plan and a design for your life and for the world that's better. So what you have to do is repent and then come to God, who has open arms and love and grace. And he's not holding it against you, but it does involve repentance, which, so there's this word that we think, oh, that, that sucks. It's kind of like groveling and an apology, but it's actually different. So here's a quote I found about repentance. It's not just confessing. It's not just a feeling bad and having some sorrow about it. It's actually marked by having a deep sorrow of what we've done and who we've been, a sorrow that leads us to change in a direction of our lives, turning away from that sin and towards God and towards the Garden of Eden, this design of being known by God and being open. It leads us towards restoration, towards their true created identity of who we are, towards being known by God. What this means is that following Jesus and this call to repentance means an action of bringing our whole real honest selves to him, the goods and the bads, Learning how to do that both in our lives with each other, but also to God, to let let ourselves be known. And it's not just saying, I'm sorry for the few things and hiding the rest. And actually, I think that's a, a difficult challenge for a lot of us is we have a relationship with Jesus. I wonder how much, how many of us have actually brought all of our lives and all the difficult struggles, all the habits and the temptations and the sins, the vices that we have in our life. If we've given some of them the easy ones to give over and said, God, I'm struggling with this. I'm sorry. This is a regret in my life. But we've kept the other ones that we like because we can hide them really well. They're subtle. They're small. They're low-key. They're hidden. And this isn't just talking about whatever the big things, you know, whatever. You could throw at ideas like pornography addiction, sex, sexual addictions, all that kind of stuff. is like the easy, low-hanging fruit. But I'm also talking about some of the bitterness. We might be holding a grudge against somebody that's gone on for decades we might have been bothered by something somebody did and we just completely wrote them off and their, their style and their things, and everything they believed. We might be completely isolating certain groups and people in our lives because we just simply don't wanna trust or be open or gracious, the same kind of grace God sends to us if we're just writing people off. When you allow the fear of vulnerability of being open and honest and known in your life, you give power to a lie that says you're not good enough, that you're a mess. And that's completely contradictory to this gospel message of Jesus, the thing that Paul brought to the Galatians and that uh, the Bible brings to us, that says you are enough and God loves you as you are. He knows that you're a bit of a disaster sometimes. He knows that there's stuff that goes wrong and that you're gonna turn back to sin. But he says all I want is for you to be honest and real with me and come to me. When we try to hide that, all we do is just validate the devil telling us that no, you're not good enough for God when God is trying to say, you're my child. Last week, we talked about this idea of adoption, which is this beautiful, intentional adoption of bringing somebody into your family. And God says, I'll take all of you, all that mess, everything about it, the sin, the good stuff, the hair, the balding, whatever, I'm gonna take all of it, I love it. And yet we still often try to put barriers to it. So what I wanna do this morning is just kind of have a quick little lesson on how to open up it's two parts on this. I thought, you know, let's just Google up. How do you you be open with each other? Because this is a rare skill. It's not normal. You're not going to learn in school or in a blog post while I search up some blogs. But we need to learn how to be open with each other first and foremost. And in that, that becomes a practice. And then we can learn how to be open with God. And so I kind of synthesized a few things. But so here's some literally just written out, mechanical, easy, like, Skills, how to be open with each other. You can try this in a relationship. Maybe you're just at a superficial talking about the weather all the time with your neighbor. How can you actually be open and more known with them? So the first one is find common interests. It's nice and easy, right? You like cars? You like bikes? You like music, knitting, painting, whatever. Common interests. Start chatting about it. Find some common things you love. Let's translate this over to faith. Faith. I would call this worship. What are things that you find amazing about God? What are things that intrigue you? Start there with God and just worship. That's what we're gonna be ending the service off with today is music we write and we uh, worship through singing together, singing songs, just a way that we celebrate the things we find amazing about God, the things that we love about God, the things that he has done and interacted in our world that we love and are impressed by, common interests. Second one, share ups and downs. In youth group, I always like doing a thing of like, okay, what's a high and a low? Force yourself almost to say a good thing and a rough thing that you're going through because we're all going through stuff, right? But we're so quick to say, you know, how's it going? I'm okay. It's fine. I did this thing this week. Probably there's some heavier stuff too. What's a good thing? What's a bad thing? Share both sides and the reality of your life, the ups and the downs. Bring that into your prayer life. That's how you can bring this into faith too. Prayer should not just be a thing in your life that's asking for stuff. God, I did not prepare for this sermon, so please bring me some words so I look like I'm half confident. Uh, instead, maybe a little bit of like, God, man, I am so busy and distracted. I am doing a poor, poor job of disciplining myself for reading the Bible, for studying. And I just, I want you in that, in me. I wanted to share, God, that I'm failing at this thing. This is a rough thing. I had a hard argument with a friend and I miss him. Whatever, bring the goods and the bads. Uh, Third one, schedule connection times, okay? Uh, If you're very type A, uh, you like schedules, literally make a regular commitment if it's gonna be a daily or a weekly thing. You need to do this with friends, with people. If you wanna grow and be more known, you just need to literally spend more time, so you need to schedule it like it's a priority in your life. And you can do that with faith as well and actually just schedule devotional time, schedule waking up early, or walks, which actually brings me to the next point, go for walks. I love this, I found this point was go for a walk. How to be open, how to open up, or be known by people. Um, You may have heard before, I I love it, it makes so much sense, when uh, two women connect with each other, they like to connect face to face, but when two men connect with each other, they connect side by side whatever we just find maybe the eye contact awkward i don't know but when i like to connect with and be open with and real with uh my friends guys i like to go for a walk or do something we like to do something side by side just gives a bit of a physical piece of how we can kind of get over the awkwardness of being vulnerable but walking down a path go for walks go outside bring that into your faith go for walks or spend time with god uh in the springtime we went through a whole series of looking at different disciplines we can bring into our life to help us alleviate rush and stress and busyness. Who here feels like they've got a busy life? Should be like everyone's hands. I know if you're retired, you're busy still too. My parents are retired and they're busier, it's bizarre. Uh, We're busy. One of the things you can do is actually schedule in and intentionally find quiet spaces. Make that a priority. If you feel like everything in your world is so noisy, find something quiet. And we live in a beautiful place, right? Heritage Park, Red Mountain, Bear Mountain, it just locally, the, the dikes on both sides of the river, beautiful places, just go for a little walk while we still have some sun. And then the last one that I thought was a cool point for how to be open and how to be more vulnerable, be more known, is go for a meal with each other. And that's what we're doing here this morning. That's what communion is, is a meal. We're gonna be sharing... Uh, communion together so that brings us to the heart of this morning service communion, and I just want to tell you a little bit about it um, But really there's no model for Setting up the ability to get to know somebody better than oversharing a meal right we love doing that last week We had a barbecue the day before that there was this huge we're connected to an organization called uh, MCC Mennonite Central Committee that does amazing relief work all around the world and they do a huge fundraiser centered around food and people look forward to that all year to just come and eat together. We love eating together. It's like the classic first date thing when you want to get to know somebody you're interested in, you find them attractive, like let's let's eat a meal together. That's how you actually get to know each other. Right? And that is what we're going to be doing here too. So communion is, is just that. It's sharing a meal together. It's also a response to an instruction literally given by Jesus himself. It's... It's an act of remembrance and worship, of just remembering what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And we celebrate the sin, or sorry, we celebrate the victory over death and over sin, but we also remember the cost it took, the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so, what it is, is this symbolic act that we do where Jesus said he was sharing a meal with his closest friends, his closest disciples. Uh, people who knew him and that he knew very well, that same kind of word, and he talked about it, he knew Peter, he knew John, yada, yada, knowing deeply. He shared a meal, and then he said, whenever you do this, whenever you break this bread and drink from this cup, he had wine and bread, do this in remembering what I've done for you. In that context, what I am going to do for you. So it's a response, it's an act of worship, And what I want to say, too, is just as a design, there's there's no expectation or obligation in this. This is an invitational act for all of you. Um, I'm gonna invite the leadership team up. They're gonna help us out with serving this. Um, We've got two tables here. We've got grape juice and we have pieces of bread. We have a gluten-free option over at this table as well. And if you can't get up out of your seat, that's fine. We're gonna have somebody who can come around and roam around to you. Um, What this is, is just an open invitation without any sort of expectation, no challenge, don't feel guilted or shamed into it. The Apostle Paul also goes on to describe this act that we're doing, he gives instructions to the churches that he planted, then he talked about for how to do this, and he talks about having a right heart. And what I kinda wanna give a sense is the right heart is not being perfect, it's not being good enough, it's not having, not had any bad thoughts for at least 12 hours before you do this. A right heart is exactly what we're talking about this morning—a desire to want to be known by God, bringing the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, bringing all of yourself vulnerable to God. That's the right heart position, and the only prerequisite for this is simply just trusting and believing what God said was true, what Jesus said was true—that He's the way to eternal life, that He is the connection to God. So too with this, we don't have there's not like an age limit thing. Uh, Parents, if you hear, kids are in the service too. All we simply ask is that this isn't a snack. This is something a bit more than that. But it's also a beautiful time to actually do this and walk through this with your kids, talking about the importance of this, talking about Jesus uh, and the interaction, the impact that he has on our lives. So what I'm going to do is read through a passage from uh, the book 1 Corinthians, Uh, the same author who wrote Galatians. He wrote this to another church in Corinth giving them just some instructions about what this practice kind of looks like. So I'm going to read through that, and I just want to give you the open invitation. I'm going to invite the worship team up as well. We're going to kind of play through a song, uh, invite you up. You can kind of just line up, grab the elements. Uh, If you'd like to take the elements together, juice and bread, with a family unit on your own, absolutely love that opportunity to do that while we're singing and worshiping together. Um, Afterwards, that too, if you're still just waiting, want to do together too, I'll just lead us through that. And then we're going to end this service off with a time of just worship and reflection. So so I've got here is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. 23. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. show Have we missed anybody around here? Yes, perfect. Uh, Michelle, um, just over on that side, if you could. So again, with this, this is uh, this is a symbolic act. Jesus gives us this sense of the sacrifice he made was so massive, and. We often talk and celebrate and we worship and reflect on the amazing gifts that he did and the the miracles, the healings, the victory over sin and death for us, but also the cost. And so Jesus was arrested and beaten and killed, executed, all for this work that he was trying to do while God's people were actually rebelling against him. And that's us. Often we put ourselves in like the good guy picture, but a lot of times... Jesus is there right in front of us, and we're still saying, no, I've got my own things. I've got stuff I want to focus on, and, and not just you, not just your gift. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus died for that, for them and for you and me as well. No matter where we're at, it's an act of love. It's an act of grace. So that's where he says, this bread represents my body, which is bo- broken, and my blood, which is poured out. So in this symbolic act, we just eat together like it's a meal. And if you're joining us at home too, if you've got the elements, I just invite you to join in on that too. But uh, just again, reading the last part there from the Apostle Paul's um, instructions, and then we can join into that together. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns.
1: You were the word at the beginning. One way i sin No.
0: Thank you that you want to know us, God. You know us, but you want to know us deeply. And that's that's so different from a world where we have to just earn and do and try everything and just be pawns in a whatever scheme. But God, instead, there's a relationship where you want to be involved. God, help us be more vulnerable, more open with each other, God, more honest and true to build deep relationships, but also, God, to see a way of doing that with you as well. Thank you for the fact that you did everything possible and you accomplished the ability to make that relationship with us, God, that you conquered death, that you've conquered sin, that you've extended love and grace to all of us. So, God, I just pray that this is a morning of impact, God, as we we do this act to remember and celebrate you and reflect on what you've done for us. But God, also in thanks that this comes out through the rest of our week, God, and every week when we're just celebrating and thinking about you, we are proclaiming the sacrifice you made for us. So God, we pray all these things in your name, amen. I just wanna send you off with a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. Have a great week, everyone, amen.